morning. It is good to see many of you. It seems a little uh, more sparse because we have a fairly large team down in Nassau, Bahamas. Uh, things went off pretty much without a hitch of them getting there. Uh, I know that Jackson got searched because of peanut butter. Um, and I think Lori ended up taking another day, because, uh, which was, in, in fact, a blessing uh, because she was sick. And so she's flying down today and they're going to be worshiping uh, there at the Kirk, and so we will need to keep them in our prayers. Um, but uh, as we, before we pray, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, and while you're paging to the front of your Bible, would you also stick a finger into uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 to 15, Deuteronomy chapter 5, 12 to 15. Uh, as, as many of you know, we actually get two sets uh, uh, two accounts of the Ten Commandments, one in Exodus 20 and one in Deuteronomy 5. Um, and I'm really, really thankful for this because uh, Deuteronomy helps us understand a lot about uh, Exodus. Um, and before we get started, uh, those of you that would like a little bit more reading because your schedules are not jam-packed already, uh, uh, there have been really two books that I've used uh, predominantly to prepare for this sermon. One is The Ten Commandments, A Manual for the Christian Life by uh, Jochim Dauma. Um, that's a fantastic work, um, a little bit more uh, heavy reading. And for those of you that have almost no time to read, uh, Kevin DeYoung's book, I'm uh, Crazy Busy, a mercifully short book on a really big problem, is the other book that I would highly recommend. Um, so I'll have both of these up here if you would like to take a look at them after the service. So let's pray. Let's pray and get started. Father God, we come to your word and your law seeking to submit ourselves to it. Uh, these familiar words, we ask that they would pierce our hearts uh, and our usual way of doing things, that things would change. And Lord, we uh, ask that you would help us see the wonder and joy of your law, and that we would delight in righteousness and flee from sin. And Father, as we come to the fourth commandment, would you renew in us the rest that we have in Christ, and would we experience anew the freedom of resting in you? And Lord, we also pray for uh, the, the missions uh, trip, the team down in the Bahamas, and we also pray especially for Lori as she travels today. Lord, would uh, their time there be full of fun and fellowship, but most of all, uh, would it be full of making your name famous in the Bahamas? Uh, would they be useful in your hands? Would we see lives change? And would uh, the impact of this team be long, uh, long-reaching and uh, uh, enduring? And so, Lord, would you give them rest as they work? Would you give them uh, strength as they work? And most of all, would you keep their eyes upon you? Um, that they might rejoice and give you all praise and glory when they return. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Exodus 20, uh, verses 8 through 11. The fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you, will, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
So people say that the world is shrinking. Globalization has made, made possible by advancements in technology means that people across vast distances are connected in ways that people couldn't have dreamed of 50 years ago. First it was the telegraph, then it was the phone, then it was the radio, and now the World Bank just this year has said that the poorest households are more likely to have access to mobile phones than they are to toilets or clean water. Connection is sort of the name of the game nowadays. And incidentally, for all of sort of those time-saving gadgets that we have, all that tech hasn't really saved us any time. Uh, the expectation in the 1960s was that the average work week, the average number of hours in a, in a work week would decrease as sort of technology advanced. You know, time-saving gadgets would actually save us time. But since 1967, the number of hours an average American has worked in a year has ballooned from 1716 hours, so 1,716 hours, to 1,878 hours. So we're actually working more. That's 162 hours a year that we're working more. Americans lead the industrial world in work hours. Back in 2000, Americans worked almost a half an hour more than their British counterparts, and two hours more per week than, the, than Germans or Italians. And uh, for us in the DC metro area, I don't really need to point to the statistics to tell you that we live in a busy and complex world. Folks in this area don't really bat an eye at 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, maybe 90 hours a week at work. And more than anywhere else, this area is consumed with work. If you think about the questions that you fire off when you first meet somebody, generally the first one is, hi, my name is, what's yours? Okay, what's your name? Second question is, what do you do for a living? Okay, more than anywhere else, what we do for a living really drives identity. And it's not just the only thing that's eating up our time. With, in the day and age of smartphones, which everybody has, the world is literally at our fingertips. The amount of information that we receive and content that we consume is kind of outrageous. It's unprecedented, the amount that we receive. And we're also constantly bombarded by opportunities as well. With all this information comes all of these opportunities for various activities. Judo, taekwondo, karate, swim club, soccer club, violin lessons, piano lessons, you know, academics, tutoring, SAT prep. The list goes literally on and on and on and, oh gosh, I'm tired. And I think one of the sort of slogans that this culture and this generation has that would sort of accurately describe it is FOMO, which is this idea of fear of missing out. There's so many good things, we don't want to miss out on something that's good. And so as a result, we pack our schedule to bring in all of these good things, Okay. And it's not even counting the programs and events of the church. And don't get me started on the busy lives of stay-at-home moms, okay? Like, they're at home all day, and they never get a break. I have a new appreciation of just how much moms work now that I have a kid of my own, right? And, like, it's just this constant refrain of busy, 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 busy. 
And most of us here at Potomac Hills would characterize our lives as busy or hectic. Most of us have a lot going on, and almost everybody says that they feel overwhelmed. And so many of us live in survival mode, just trying to get through the week. And as we come to the fourth commandment, if you're anything like me, we might just despair. There's just simply not enough time in the week to do everything that we want. The idea of setting aside an entire day for the Lord can seem like a pipe dream. How can the Lord possibly expect me to carve out an entire day for him? And that's even if the fourth commandment has actually crossed our minds. Sure, it's, you know, the next one in our list, and so that's why we're going over it. But for the most part, many of us forget that this commandment even exists, or we just ignore it. It's probably the most forgotten or most ignored commandment in the 10, maybe sort of on par with number nine, which everybody just can't, can't, can't remember what nine is to begin with, which is bearing false witness. It's like the one that you're like, I've got nine of them. I can't remember what the 10th is. Oh, it's bearing false, false witness, right? I mean, obviously God understands where we're at, right? He knows our schedule. He knows our lives. But he's also clear on how he expects us to live in his word. And as we uh, dive into looking into the fourth commandment, we're going to take this in three chunks. Okay? We're going to look at what the Sabbath is. We're going to spend the bulk of our time there. And then we're going to see how we mess this up. And then lastly, we're going to try to see how we can actually obey the commandment in our lives. So what's up with the commandment? Well, the commandment comes in two parts. Remember, this, the Sabbath day is the first part. And keep it holy is the second part. This is verse 8. So part one, why are the Israelites to remember the Sabbath day? What are they remembering? Well, in verse 11, we're told, because the Lord rested on the seventh day from his creative work and blessed that day. The rest is to be celebrated and remembered. There's some debate on whether or not the Sabbath is a creation mandate, but for our purposes, it doesn't really matter. Because this is where Deuteronomy comes in. So if you turn over to Deuteronomy 5... Remember, as we learned from our last series, when it comes to understanding the word of God, we need to consider the whole counsel of God, so that's what we're going to do. In Deuteronomy 5.15, we get a different reason for the Sabbath remembrance. The Lord says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. So the Israelites were remembering both God's example in creation as well as the salvation that, has, that was worked out for them in their deliverance out of slavery in Egypt. And so the, the Sabbath was to be celebrated as a day of liberation, a day, a day of liberation, as well as a day of rest. So let me say that again. The Sabbath was, celebrate, was to be celebrated as a day of liberation, as well as a day of rest. So what about the second part? The second part of the commandment, the keep it holy part, literally is just one word in the Hebrew. It means to consecrate or to set apart. And this means that the Sabbath is to be different. It's supposed to be lived differently than the other six days. And we see that in the rest of today's verses. In verses 9 and 10 in Exodus 20, we get a prohibition on work. And it's not just the Israelites that were to stop working. It's a universal halt to all work. Your, you and your kids couldn't work, your servants couldn't work, your animals couldn't work, and even the foreign visitors were not permitted to work. 
It was a time to rest and to take a break. Exodus 23 verse 12 says that the that people are to rest on the Sabbath in order to be refreshed. Exodus 31 verse 17 says that the Lord rested on the seventh day and was refreshed. And so the Sabbath day was also to be a day for refreshment. Liberation and now for refreshment. And now what do I mean by refreshment? I certainly don't mean that creation was hard for God and that he needed to rest up and recharge and be refreshed in that sort of way. But rather, the verb in uh, the Hebrew can mean to take breath. And so you step back, you take a breath, and you survey what's happened. And so there is clearly a physical aspect to the commandment, but it obviously doesn't end there. That would mean that the Sabbath would, um, if you you can't talk about holiness and confine it solely to the physical, that would mean if uh, that the Sabbath could be made holy simply by, by being lazy and doing nothing, and that's clearly not the case, right? But with rest comes worship. It's a consecrated rest, a rest with a purpose of doing something. And that, ser- that something is part one, that remembering. And so when we, all, when we stick it all together, it's something like a moment of silence, okay? We stop everything, and we remember a momentous event or a heroic sacrifice. We pause, um, we rest, pausing from our labors, not, but not without purpose. And there's an honoring of, the time, of that time to give praise and lament over something or someone. And the Sabbath has a similar character. Our remembrance requires worship, and that worship requires us to stop what we normally do and give the object of our worship, namely God, the honor that is due him. But it's a lot more joyous than a moment of silence. Isaiah 58, verse 13, calls the Sabbath a delight. And so we get a bit of a different picture than a moment of silence. Rather, we get a feast. And the Sabbath was a feast. And if you think about it, the Sabbath also had to be a good time. Okay, You're celebrating your freedom from slavery as well as God's goodness to you. Think about the annual and generational Sabbaths built into Israelite culture. The annual Passover happened on the Sabbath, for instance. It celebrated deliverance from the angel of death and from slavery. Now, do you think that it was all solemnity and quiet reflection on the Passover? Like, you just fold your hands and just sort of say, thank you, God, for not killing me and setting me free from 400 years of slavery and do that the whole day. No, of course not. It's supposed to be a celebration of salvation. And there's no greater thing to celebrate about and party about, right? Now, what about Jubilee years? These are sort of the generational Sabbaths. They were to come every 50 years, and every 50 years, all debts would be canceled, and everybody would be returned to their initial inheritance. It would have been a joyous time for you to return to the land of your fathers and be saved from a life of servitude and poverty. It was, supposed to be joy- it was also supposed to be joyful for the ones giving up the wealth associated with this restoration. There's a reason why we watch TV shows where people are given life-changing gifts that lift them out of their troubled situations. We love watching you know, that poor waitress who's living paycheck to paycheck, driving a rust bucket of a car, be given a new car simply for the joy of helping them. It's a wonderful thing to see lives changed. 
And this is the heart behind the Sabbath, that the Israelites would take time to remember the goodness of the Lord to them, the way in which their lives have been changed, and that they would remember each week the joy that has been given them, the salvation that was worked out for them. Have you ever stopped to think why we love church retreats? Have you ever thought about the reason why church retreats are often our mountaintop experiences, our experiences where we just meet God in new and profound ways? It's because we get away. We Sabbath from our labors simply because we're away from it all. And then we pair that rest with a healthy dose of worship and fellowship. It's a glorious time that we're loath to end. And that's what we're talking about. That's what the heart of the Sabbath is. A physical rest paired with worship and fellowship that restores and feeds the soul. So now that we know what the Sabbath is and what the fourth commandment are, we understand that they're to be gifts to the Israelites. So as sinners, how do we mess this up? Well, we mess them up in at least two ways. At least two, but we're only going to go over two, okay? First way is that we sometimes just don't want to take the Sabbath at all. The inability uh, to cease our working is a fairly common problem, right? We see in the prophet Amos, um, his book, that merchants back in that time complained that the Sabbath cut into their business hours, right? For those of you that are in the adult Sunday school, you can look forward to reading about how the Israelites also had a problem stopping their work uh, in Nehemiah 13, There, folks were working on the Sabbath because it was good for business. Now, this really reveals the heart of the Israelites as well as our own. Why did they disobey the fourth commandment? Why didn't they take a day off and worship? They did it because when it comes down to it, they care more about making money and worldly things than they do about obedience. And that's what it comes down to for us. For those of us that claim to be too busy to take a Sabbath, to really consecrate the day and to protect its worship and joyous character, what does that say about your valuation of the fourth commandment relative to your activities? What does it say about our evaluation of Jesus, the intended object of rest and worship? And this is really hard for us to hear. This was really hard for me to write because I'm not like this, right? And I don't want the implications of that. Sometimes this will mean that we will have to actively choose obedience to the fourth commandment over good and edifying and fun activities that utilize and develop the gifts that the Lord has given to us. Sometimes this will mean saying no to that activity that could pad your resume or your child's resume. And for the modern person, it's really just simply inconvenient. And it's contrary to the flow of the prevailing culture. But what this excuse misses is the fact that part of our ceasing from our works and our activity is that, that when we do that, it's an act of faith in the Lord for our provision. When we stop from our striving, we say that we trust the Lord for our worldly cares, that our life does not rely on our effort or our labor. Now, a quick aside here, um, because some folks would say that the Sabbath is actually fulfilled in Christ and so is no longer binding. It's sort of a righteous way to not have a fourth commandment. 
They would point to the fact that the Sabbath was of the Mosaic law, which was fulfilled in Christ, and that now every day is a Sabbath unto God as we rest in Christ. Well, don't get me wrong, that's a, a good line of reasoning, right? And I understand that in all of, like, we should consecrate the, all of our days to the Lord. Don't get me wrong. But what it discounts is the way that Jesus himself talks about the Sabbath. And while there isn't a sort of explicit reaffirmation of the Sabbath in the New Testament or the commandment in the New Testament, the way that Jesus speaks about the Sabbath implies and assumes a continuing Sabbath. In Mark 2 and 3, Jesus is questioned about his disciples plucking grain to eat on the Sabbath, a violation of the Pharisaical law. Um, since plucking grain in this manner could be construed as harvesting, which would then be construed as work, which would then be violating the Sabbath. And Jesus was also a question about his healing of a man on the Sabbath as well. In both, ca- in both cases, Jesus sort of pushes back against the laws made by Ben that abuse the spirit of the commandment, but doesn't actually do away with the commandment at all. He just deals with the abuse, but doesn't actually get a, like, say, oh, there's no, there's no, like, no more Sabbath. It's fulfilled me. He never says that. Which brings us to the sort of the second way that we mess up things um, when it comes to the fourth commandment. We simply make too many rules for it. The Pharisees had such a high view of the law that they added a bunch of laws to ensure the actual law of God was not broken. When it came to the prohibition on work in the fourth commandment, the Pharisees set out to define just what qualified as work. And so we get the plucking of grains thing in Mark 2. And when there's also a law against rubbing grain between your fingers because uh, lest you crush it, and then you would be guilty of milling or of uh, threshing, uh, which could be work and then be thus a violation of the law. The big problem that Jesus had with the Pharisees was that they cared more about the letter of the law than the spirit of it. Their obedience didn't come from a law of uh, a love of God and a desire to live in light of who God is, but rather it came from a desire to justify themselves. And so they replaced this joyful resting and delight in, originally intended for the people of God for their rest and their refreshment, and they replace it with scrupulous obedience and anxiety. This is a new form of slavery. Slavery to performance and to good works, which they have been liberated from to begin with. And this is why Jesus declared in Mark 2.27 that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And Alistair Begg, who I love quoting, has a great way of restating this verse. He said in a sermon from 2009 that the Sabbath was not given to reduce man to a rule-keeping robot. It's a gift for man um, for his blessing and benefit. So what does this mean for the guidelines that we're going to be getting to shortly, right? It means that the guidelines are not laws, but rather wisdom to help you think through your obedience. Now, here are some thoughts on what this all will look like as we seek to be obedient. The first thought is interpersonal nature. No one can bind the conscience when it comes to keeping the Sabbath. It's a fairly vague uh, commandment. It just tells you to remember and to keep it holy. What it looks like is not spelled out. And so we can't stand here. I can't stand here and say, hey, you, this is the way that you keep the, the Sabbath. You need to do this, this, and this, and this, and this. And you cannot do this, all these other things. 
I can't say that to you. Rather, we need to see that while there, there will not be uniformity in application, there will instead be a uniformity of principles. And there are definitely folks in the church that are proud of their Sabbath keeping, right? They go so far as to call themselves Sabbatarians, as if those that don't keep the Sabbath in the exact same way as them are guilty of disobedience to the commandment. Please don't be these people. The Sabbath is not about you or your, your obedience. It's about the Lord. It's about his rest and the salvation given to us in Christ Jesus by grace. You need to figure out what obedience looks like for you and your family. And that obedience will invariably and inevitably look different than what it will look like for me. Secondly, and again, we need to, uh, and again, we need to consider honestly and ruthlessly our schedules. Do we structure our weeks in such a way that we are free to be obedient to this commandment? Do we structure our weeks in such a way that obedience to Christ in this day is an absolute priority? Now, it's important to note that works of necessity, mercy, and religion are exceptions to this commandment, as we saw in the catechism earlier um, in the call to worship. Sort of a doctor or a nurse working in a hospital really needs to keep their patients alive on Sunday, so they they ought to be working. Um, But even in the midst of those works, is Christ seen as a priority? You know, when I look at my answers to these questions, I don't particularly like what I see. I don't particularly like these implications. Again, for many of us, this will mean cutting things out of your life and the lives of your kids that you absolutely love to do. But wisdom is not about choosing between right and wrong. That's righteousness and unrighteousness. It's pretty clear, right? Rather, is, rather wisdom is about choosing what is best among a sea of good things. And so, you know, again, travel soccer or swim club are not in in and of themselves sinful. But when you pair them with a million other things, it can mean that we're not being good stewards of our time. And so, so much of this issue with our scheduling is not that we don't want to have the Sabbath. It's just that the Sabbath doesn't receive the proportion that it ought. It does not receive the priority that it ought. And lastly, it's it's vitally important to place the Sabbath in its proper context. Its proper context is a remembrance of the Lord's deliverance of, of us out of slavery and into the rest that he enjoys. It's all about that. It's all about God's deliverance and our rest that we can now enjoy in that. We move from Sabbath to Sunday in that we celebrate not a deliverance from slavery in Egypt, but rather a deliverance from the slavery of sin at the cross and resurrection. The Sabbath is all about God and what he has done. Sinclair Ferguson noted that the law permitted the crippled man to, uh, with a withered hand in Mark 3 to have joy, the man that Jesus healed. The law permitted him to have joy. In fact, the law commanded him to have joy, to rejoice in what the Lord has done for him in just being an Israelite and bringing him out of slavery in Egypt, right? He's commanded to do that. But the law does not enable him to actually have joy. It could not restore him unto joy, unto true joy. Only Jesus could do that. 
And so the commandment is there to turn us from ourselves and our busy striving to the only one who can give true joy and life. And this is why we come to church on Sunday. It's not to check off the fourth commandment box. It's to remember what Christ did for us. It's to remember that while you and I were still sinners, Christ died for your sins, releasing you from the penalty and power of sin and death. But Christ also gave you rest. He not only paid the penalty, but he has given you something to rejoice in as well. And that is a rest, an eternal rest. And we look forward to that day. Sunday is to, is to be a day of joy as we rest in our salvation. And this is how we do it. If your Sabbaths are not marked with joy, you have missed the wonder of what Jesus has done for you. And not just what Jesus has done for you, but Jesus himself. All of the previous thoughts, what the Sabbath was supposed to be, how we mess it up, and our prioritizing and all of that, all that has to be rooted in the reality that our Sabbath, our Sunday, is is all about the one we love, namely Christ. Does your Sunday ooze with Christ? Could you look at your Sunday and say that it was a day in which we ordered our entire day around celebrating our union with Christ and each other and his people? Jesus, as is almost always the case in sermons, is the root and the object of our actions. We rest because of Jesus. We rest unto Jesus, and we seek to obey the fourth commandment because of Jesus. You know, as I think about the fourth commandment, I can't help but feel this tension, right? On the one hand, we care deeply about our earthly situations, and we're called to exercise wisdom and be good stewards of our time and our people and our, our time, our talents, and our treasure, right? And that, it, that means that often we are busy people. And on the other hand, we care deeply about obedience to the Lord. And I found that it's a, been a tremendous help to see that the Sabbath is not a thing that I have to do, but rather something that I get to do. I see it as a way of living and exploring my romance with the Lord. You know, when I started dating my wife, everything changed, right? Longtime friends of mine marveled that I stopped playing video games and computer games. Like, we went from, like, tens of hours per week to, like, nothing, right? And they knew I was serious because I had stopped playing those games. And I even cut down sort of the amount of time that I'd spent with other friends because I wanted to spend time with Sarah. You know, do I miss those friends? Yes. Do I miss my video games? You betcha, right? <laughs> do I miss, you know, all of the trappings of, like, just being able to do what I want when I want you know, however I want to do it. Well, yeah. But I am so happy to not be playing games anymore, right? I'm so happy to be able to spend time with her. And, you know, when people, when we got married, you know, the first thing that you ask in newlywed is, how's married life going? What's the best thing about being married? And invariably, the thing that I said was, I feel this profound rest in my soul because of my marriage to Sarah. It's a relief even, right? Thank God she didn't run away. <laughs> Thank God she said yes. Uh, Thank God she said I do and I will. 
there's this profound rest that we rest in that like I have somebody there with me, that I'm settled. And shouldn't the Sabbath be like that for us? We have a lover of our souls that loves us and gives us rest. He's promised that rest to us. It's profound and amazing. Should it not change the way that we approach our lives? Should it not change the way that we order our whole existence? We don't rearrange everything because of commandment. We rearrange everything because we want to spend time with the one that we love more than anything else. And so as we spend time with him, we will enjoy the rest that he brings that far surpasses all others. That's the whole point of the commandment. Not that we would do something, but that we would enjoy him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are a distracted and busy people. We are often so caught up in the activities of today that we forget to order our weeks around you. We pray that you would give us grace, grace to see our disobedience, grace to repent and seek change. Would you help us see with eyes full of wisdom that you would have us change, what you would have us change in our schedules? Would you give us the desire and the strength and perseverance to reorder our lives? We want to do this so that we could enjoy you more. We want to do this so that we would be with you more. And so, Lord, help us as we go. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.